0: Good morning everyone. Good morning! It is great to see you all. So many of you in person. Hello! I'm glad you are here. Those of you joining us online, this is really about the first time that we are in person and live streaming something like this. And so for those of you in person, I hope this is just fine in person. Um, For those of you online would love to know what you think of this new format and how it works. A few housekeeping things before we get rolling. I want to remind you all that we've got four years of lessons on our website that are also in a podcast. So if you go to stmichael.org rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study, we have backlogged all of the audio from the last four years, which is Luke, Acts, Genesis, Daniel, and Revelation. And so you can go back, listen to those. Or if you are new this year, you can go and listen to those studies. And if you search for Rector's Bible Study, anywhere you listen to podcasts you can get all of those as a podcast and you do not have to stream on our website which is ideal and so we hope that you will plug in and join us for those lessons as we start what is a new three-year cycle we start today and i'll say a little bit more on that in just a minute Um, one last thing we've got a few just housekeeping bits those of you here in person very glad that you are here. You probably noticed that parking is different this year. Um, and so know that we are actually expanding our parking capacity in the next few weeks. And so it should be a little bit better. We've, we should have about 65 spaces available every Wednesday at minimum for you to be able to park here on campus. And so do come. We should have space. If you've got a friend, ride with a friend. It will just make it so much easier. Um, and... Many of you who knew Meredith Rose as my executive assistant last year um, may have read that she was recruited away, sadly, to do a job she is very excited about. And so we are very pleased for her. And I welcomed a new EA yesterday, and her name is Bavnita Mussey. And Bav is right here in the front. Um, and so her name is Bav. It rhymes with love. And so love with a B. And would love for you to introduce yourself to her. And for those of you joining online, she's going to be regularly posting on our site so that you can ask questions about what we are doing here together. We've got bookmarks available at all the doors. If you are on our email list, you should have received a PDF of this bookmark that you can print out or grab one on your way out. And they're also available on the RBS website. So with all of that, I think we're ready to get started. So let's start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today, and we ask that you help to open us up, make space inside us for your spirit to fill us up, and that as we study together, we can be inspired, inspired to be changed and transformed, to be your hands and feet in the world that you love, extending your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A reminder that you're welcome to silence your phones (laughs) if you have it. Um, I love hearing the phone calls but you know. So quick reminder that we love questions, I love questions. If you're here in person, raise your hand anytime. If you're online, ask your questions in the chat fields and Bub is going to pass those questions on to me as we go throughout this study so we can ask those questions either live and if you've got questions that occur to you after this study, then send a note to above any time or to me. I will collect those questions throughout the week and then intentionally try and get to those questions in next week's study. We begin a three-year cycle today. Oh, do you know what? I meant to say this at the beginning. Point of personal privilege. My grandmother's 93rd birthday is today, so happy birthday. She's watching online, so she's sweet and cute, Um, and she's 93, so happy birthday to you. Okay, now back to it. Three-year cycle begins today. Last year, when I asked you all what you wanted to study, one of the things that came up regularly is another gospel. Those of you who've been with me for a few years now know that the very first year we did Luke, and we haven't done a gospel since then. The desire for a gospel usually landed on John. That was most people's desire, is to do John. As I thought through the big scheme of the study, what I realized is it would make most sense to study John if we went back and studied the characters that impacted the understanding of Jesus the most. And so as I thought through that, understanding Moses and David is critically important to being able to really understand Jesus, how Jesus fits into the big arc of the salvation story. And so, what I designed, and I know from many of you that you really like this idea, is we're going to spend the next three years focusing primarily year one on Moses, year two on David, and then year three on Jesus in the Gospel of John. When we do Exodus and Leviticus this year, Moses is going to be the big prominent character, but we're going to go all around and talk about many other people, Miriam and Aaron and Joshua and all those good people. And then, of course, with David next year, we're going to be doing Kings and Chronicles. And so we're going to get Saul and Solomon. We're going to get Samuel and Nathan as the prophets. So we're going to create a nice big study around the characters of Moses and David. But the intention here is that we go deep into who these people were and how they impacted this big arc of salvation so that when people met Jesus, prayed about Jesus, experienced his resurrection, and then began to tell that story, we can understand why they told the story the way they did and how important it was in the Jewish identity to anchor the understanding of Jesus as the Christ in the characters of people like Moses and David. So that's what we're beginning today. To get us started, as I do each year, I want to just spend a few minutes on the Bible itself. Because the Bible, you know, is important. And so I hope that you have a Bible with you. If you do not, that's okay. There's always next week. I hope you have a Bible at home that you like. And so a quick word on translations, because I get this question every year, multiple times a year. In the Episcopal Church, we read the New Revised Standard Version. That's the NRSV. That's the one that we read in our worship services. That's the version I use here when you hear me quote anything from the scripture passages. It's going to be the NRSV. For many people, the NIV is just as good and perhaps even a little easier to understand. The NIV is well translated. It just softens the language a little bit. If you've read through the NRSV, there are certain books of the Bible in the NRSV where it seems a little clunky where the language is just not perhaps the way you would speak, and the NIV softens those edges just a touch, but it is still a translation. I've noted in the past, and so it's worth noting again, there are other versions of the Bible that are called paraphrases, and a paraphrase is what something like the message would be a paraphrase. It is not a direct translation, but I find the message to be super helpful in the most dense sections of the Bible because you, it's almost as if someone says, let me give you the spark notes or the cliff notes about what's going on here. Then you can go and read the Shakespeare, right? So if the language is a little dense, a touch confusing, the message is a great place to go, get a nice overview of what's actually happening, then go back into the translation and actually see what the words themselves are saying, and that will provide a much richer experience. Any questions about translations, paraphrases, whatnot? Mm-hmm. Remember, I tend to wait seven seconds for people to form a question. <laughs> Good. Let's talk the Bible for a couple minutes. The Bible is a library. You've heard me say this before. And the Bible, as a library, is something that cannot be read consistently front to back without any contradiction. Those of you who did Genesis with me a couple years ago know you've got chapter one and chapter two. Two creation stories, different order, totally different meaning for both stories. And in the first two chapters of the Bible itself, if you needed to take it literally, literally, then you've got a problem because you've got two different stories and two different structures right off the bat. And so instead, understanding the Bible as this library with lots of books on the shelf, and you can pull those books off in multiple different orders, and you have to read each book slightly differently than one another, then we begin to become literate about the Bible. And to read the Bible literately is so much more important than to reading it literally. And so, as we go into Exodus, we're going to have a few ideas that I put forward about Genesis two years ago that we'll reiterate here, but it helps us to understand the place of the Bible. I approach the Bible as something that is not literal. It is true, and we'll talk about that. In addition, I will reference the Old Testament, and it is not disrespectful because you may have heard people say Hebrew Bible at some point, or the Hebrew Scriptures. They are the Hebrew Scriptures, but I tend to use the, the term Old Testament because it acknowledges that as Christians, the books that we read in the order that we read them is different than the books in the order that our Jewish brothers and sisters would read. In the Hebrew Scriptures, so the way that Jews would read in their own worship services or that they would study in school, is a particular order, and you've heard the term Tanakh in here before. The Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, is actually the acknowledgement of the three major parts of Hebrew Scripture. The Torah, which are the first five books, right? Those are the teachings. The Nevi'im, which are the prophets. And then the Ketuvim, the writings, that's the poetry section. In the Hebrew Scriptures, you get them in that order teachings, prophets, and then writings and poetry. In our Bibles, in the Old Testament, the Christian ordering, the part two and three are flipped. And so we get the Torah first, but then we get the Ketuvim, the poetry and the writings before we get the prophets. And there's an intentional reason for that. We end with Malachi pointing to the return of Elijah because the next book in the series is Matthew. And so for us, the Old Testament is setting up, is teeing up Jesus. Well, of course, for Jews, that's not actually the point of the order of the story. And so I say Old Testament in here to acknowledge that it is actually a different ordering of slightly different set of books than what would be the Hebrew Bible. Same basic idea. Just a different purpose, one might say. Let's see. I think that's probably good on the Bible. Any questions or follow-up or clarity for that? So Jews don't use the term Old Testament. No. No. Jews do not use the term Old Testament. Um, For them, it is the Testament. So Testament is story, right? Or you might think of it as... Another word might be a covenant or a promise, um, and so we have, the, in a sense, the old promise and the new promise, or the old story and the new story. It's not meant to be—there's there's the, an, an obvious problem with the word old, right? You sort of have, like, the wrong and the right. I mean, that's the implication, which is not at all what we intend. There's nothing wrong with never using the phrase Old Testament again that is not a problem. For me I want to use it because historically that's what it's been called and I do want us to understand it's not exactly the canon that Jewish people use. It's close, but the order is shifted and the number the actual books themselves are not exactly the same. And so it's small percentage, but it's still a real difference. And I think it's important for us to just keep that in our minds as we become better biblical scholars, to just kind of hold that in our mind. Any other questions or clarity? I'm so excited to be doing this again. I missed you all. Okay. I got home last night after doing some notes and I said to Nicole, I'm like, I'm so excited about Bible study. Um, Plus, it's... I know, my children just roll their eyes when I do things like that. Nerd. (laughs) Whatever. Okay, let's start talking a little bit about a Genesis review. It is very important. Obviously, we are in the Torah, those five books of the law. And it's important that we just hold Genesis in our mind before we get into Exodus. Genesis, the Old Testament is effectively broken up into three major parts. You really get kind of the world and the creation. Right, so that is all of the prehistoric stories. So that's the creation story and the flood story, the move all the way to Terah, Abraham's dad. And then we get to Abraham, and that's really the story of the Israelites. And it provides the purpose for the Israelites, the purpose of the Jewish people. And we get Abraham down to Moses to the judges. Then we shift into the kingdom. And that kingdom period is really the life of the Jewish people. And that kicks off, technically it kicks off with Saul, but it really solidifies with David. Saul just was not great. And so David is really that first unifying king. The arc of the story has those three big parts. And then we get to the turning point, which is the exile. And I feel like I beat the exile to a pulp a couple years ago. And so if you want more explanation around the exile, then the Genesis study has probably an hour or more of me talking about the exile. And so go there, you can vet that all out. But suffice it to say that the exile is the moment when the Jewish people began to ask the question, what happened? What went wrong? Why did God do this? That is the moment, I've said this many times, that's the moment when all of the stuff before that, so the Torah, all the Chronicles and the Kings, all of those stories were written down. That means the stories that we are reading in Genesis and Exodus and beyond are stories that were told through oral tradition for hundreds if not thousands, years plus before they were written down. Now, if any of you have heard a good storyteller tell a story, even just a few times over the course of a few months, I am guilty of this, that story changes and gets better, right? And it's that fish gets a lot bigger, right? And so one thing to just hold in our minds is that we are not reading a story that is sort of journalistic in its integrity, right? There wasn't a person walking alongside Moses and saying, wait, could you say that again? And then writing down what he said, right? All of this stuff happened, and then people told the story. Generations and generations and generations. Until finally, the, Jews, the Jewish leadership gets into exile, and they say, wait a minute, what happened? Because really, from the point we're about to start with right now, it's all up. There are bumps along the road, right? There are certain judges' moments and things like that that aren't great. But in a sense, in the aggregate, it's all up until they're taken into exile, they're defeated. The Babylonians ruin their entire self-image. So then what are they supposed to do? Who are they? Because they thought they knew, but then they begin to ask the question, well, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we need to really vet this a bit more. So then they tell the story in sequence with a particular eye toward making sure they renew their confidence in Yahweh. Up to that point, Yahweh had delivered them, basically, over and over and over again. Why, then, did they go into exile? Was Yahweh too weak to overcome the Babylonians? But well, they said, no, that's not true. Yahweh is God and so Yahweh is strong enough. So then, if Yahweh is not too weak, Yahweh must have let it happen. Well, Why did Yahweh let it happen? Are we not faithful enough? And if we are not faithful enough, what kind of faithfulness do we need to be? And how do we anchor our identity in these great stories we've been telling ourselves? The story of Moses and the Exodus fits so perfectly into that historic narrative As we go through this year, always keep next to you this idea that the story is being told in a particular way toward a particular end that helps to renew the faithfulness the Jewish people had in Yahweh as a means to inspire the people that they would become. And why that's important, in two, three years we're going to talk about this a lot. The world Jesus enters into is a world that has become highly legalistic for one specific reason. The Jews don't want to get it wrong again. They don't want to go into exile again. And so they create all these rules that begin to weigh them down for a very good reason. And Jesus walks into that space and says, the rules aren't going to save you. That's really not the point. We are beginning that arc of the story today. And the way that Moses is told, the story of Moses, is going to impact the way we understand Jesus when we get to John a couple years from now. All right. Mm -mm -mm. That's good. We're going to go now into Exodus. Ready? Remember, if you have a question, just stop me. In Exodus, we get a hard shift. We do a big time jump. And so turn your page one back to the very last verses of Genesis, and we're going to end Genesis and then go right into Exodus, and you're going to see that there's a big chronological jump happening here. So the very final verses of Genesis, if you look at chapter 50, verse 22, let's just read these last verses together. I should preface this by reminding everyone. Abraham traveled from Ur into the land of Canaan. He wasn't able to get good land, so he got the land that was available to him. Abraham's son Isaac had a son Jacob, who had a son Joseph. Jacob had many other sons, in addition to Joseph, but Joseph was the one who was beautiful and the favorite, and so he was sold into slavery by his brothers, thought to be dead, but ended up, through some very fun stories— to becoming number two in Egypt. Then there was a famine, and Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, had to go to Egypt to buy grain. And there's the whole wonderful story of Joseph recognizes them, they don't recognize him, he tricks them, he gets them to prove that they learned from having treated Joseph so badly by protecting Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. And so Joseph forgives them and invites the entire family to come to Egypt where they had enough food. And so Jacob, all of the sons, everybody moves over into Egypt, and Joseph is the big man. He is number two. He can protect them and give them good property and give them good land, and they're really in a good shape. That is where we are when we hit verse 22 of chapter 50. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years, jump to 24, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, when God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died being 110 years old. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. We'll pause. Joseph tells his brothers, who are older than him, so they are very old, he tells his brothers, I'm about to die, and then he says, I am so sure God's going to bring you up out of this land. Now, after everything I said five minutes ago, do you see the way that the story is being constructed? Now, one could say that Joseph had a vision, and that Joseph, in that vision, God appeared to Joseph and said, I'm going to make sure the people come up out of Egypt someday. But at this point... Does that make much sense? Joseph has set them up. In the richest country in the known world right at that time, they're living high on the hog. I mean, they're fine. What sense would it make for Joseph to say, don't you worry, God's going to get you out of this bad place someday. The people would be like, it's really nice here. You know, I mean, why would we want to leave? So that doesn't make any sense unless you know the rest of the story which, of course, the people writing this down knew. They knew the problems they were going to face in Egypt. They knew how God was going to deliver them. They knew how they were going to come into Israel and create this kingdom. They knew all of that. And so it makes sense what Joseph says if you know the rest of the story. But in time, that's a weird thing for Joseph to say to his family. So let's keep going. Exodus opens with the very first verses, and it's a summary of Genesis, effectively. Let's just read those first seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation, but the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We'll pause there again. These first seven verses give you a quick snapshot of basically how did they get there, right? It's one of those sort of, you know, last time on Genesis, right? This is sort of season two, and you need to be reminded of season one, right? And so this is the first 30 seconds you skip over in Netflix where, before you get to the actual story. So they've essentially said, this is what happened, now we're going to make a big jump. If you are telling a story where people are in problematic moment in time and they've got to get saved in a sense out of Egypt, you have to structure a problem And Genesis doesn't really give you a problem because Joseph saves them. Exodus sets up the problem. In the first seven verses, we get the recap, and then we pivot with verse 8, and we jump a few hundred years, and I'll get to that in one second. These opening verses, although they reflect back the story of Genesis, they actually begin to shift and acknowledge that the Egyptians likely had a problem with the Israelites in some way. So we see in Genesis chapter 1 that God created humankind in his image, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. So here at the beginning of Exodus, we see that the Israelites are actually doing the thing they were made to do. They are being fruitful and they are multiplying. They are filling the land with all of their progeny. But here, there's a little tweak. If you look back at verse 7 in Exodus, we see the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. Good. They're doing the thing God made them to do. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. There's a subtle little phrase there. Exceedingly strong. That's not about their health, right? this is not a comment on their ability to procreate. This is actually noting they were strong and they weren't just regular strong, they were exceedingly strong. A close reading of these verses might give you a little sniff of the problem that is coming down the pike, right? The Israelites are just too strong. And so Egypt begins to reject their strength because they are threatened by their strength. So the Israelites are in Egypt. They basically come, hmm, what do I want to say? Hold on. Now is a good time to talk about history. <laughs> I love history. You heard me say with Genesis, in particular the stories before Abraham, that they are stories that are in a sense mythic. They are not untrue, but they are not historic. In a sense, we have to balance—we're modern people, so this is hard. We have to balance the difference between something being historic and something being true. When we get to Abraham, we have a slight shift toward more prehistory. I really don't want to unpack all of this right now. If you have a question about what I mean when I mean historic and truth— I did a lot of this in the first episode or two of Genesis study a couple years ago, so I commend those to you. But I will simply say, as I noted before in the way that we tell stories, we have this sense of journalistic accuracy. Well, we had a sense of journalistic accuracy. I'm not... I don't know that I can claim that anymore. Um, At one point in time, we used to actually think there were facts. Um, And we would say things like, certain thing happened. A person was in a place and they said a thing at a certain time and that was recorded as historic fact. And the historicity of stories was very important to us. Prior to really the 19th century, maybe the 18th century, the idea of historicity was not really that important. Stories were only good if stories moved you and made you believe something or act in a certain way. And we see that even in our own American history, right? If we look at stories about George Washington for a couple hundred years, I mean, George Washington was like a demigod, right? I mean, he just, he was perfect, right? He made every good choice and he made every right decision and it was amazing. Recent history has shown that, I mean, he had flaws just like anybody. He was great, but he was not perfect. And even stories like The Cherry Tree, which I said a couple years ago, right? That's not a real, that's not a historic story. It's a good one, but that never happened. That's okay, because it's a story we tell because we as Americans wish to be a certain kind of person. We wish to be truth tellers. We wish to be honest with one another. And so we create stories of our heroes that reinforce the sort of cultural values we hold and we wish to instill in our children and in future generations. This is very similar. And so these stories that are told are stories that are meant to really instill these highly valuable ideas and character traits, but historic accuracy was never the point. And they weren't trying to deceive anyone. They weren't trying to be historic at all. That wasn't the point of a story. They're telling a good story. And we noted back with Genesis that there are multiple Babylonian stories that mirror the stories that we find in Genesis, whether that was the Enuma Elish or Gilgamesh, you name it. What the, what the then Jewish people were doing was one-upping Babylon. That was their point. Their point in exile was to say, you may have beat us this time, but you do not think that Yahweh is less strong than your gods. Yahweh is much better than yours. And so we told stories about Yahweh being better. And then at some point, those stories became the canon that defined an entire group of people and their religious identity. I just said the then-Jews. I do want to note, at this point in time, in the Exodus story, Judaism does not exist. These are Israelites. They are Hebrew people. They are Semitic people. They are not Jewish. Until we have the moment at Mount Sinai, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments, there is no Judaism. In fact, one could argue there still isn't really Judaism, even with the Ten Commandments, that it takes generations to actually define and work out what being Jewish means. But right now we've got an ethnic group of people, Semitic people. And I should say that we are familiar with the term Semitic or Semite as being specifically Jewish. As in anti-Semitic, right? That's something that we have known, unfortunately, in the 20th century much more than we ever should have. But Semitic peoples are much bigger than just the Jewish people. Semitic effectively means kind of Middle Eastern. It's Eastern, I mean, Western Asian people are more or less Semitic. Egyptians are not Semitic. But Semitic peoples are those who speak a Semitic language. And there were effectively three groups of Semitic peoples. You have the East Semitic peoples, which would have been the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Akkadians. They lived, in a sense, geographically north of Israel. Then you had the Southern Semitic peoples, and they lived in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and in the Horn of Africa. So that would mean the Ethiopians would have been Southern Semitic peoples. Then you have the central Semitic people. That's our people. Those are the Israelites. Those are people who lived in Canaan. They were the Phoenicians, who ultimately became the Lebanese and Greek people, and also the Arameans. And we know Jesus spoke Aramaic. And so that central Israel, what is today Israel, Syria, Lebanon, those, Turk, you know, Jordan, those areas, those are the central Semitic peoples. The Hebrew people are a branch of that entire Semitic group. They are the ones that came down into Egypt, and they are the ones who are going to be released and saved from Egypt under Moses' leadership. Okay, any questions about that? I know it's like history class, sorry. We're going to do much more about Exodus as we move on, but this sets us up to understand all the dynamics. The Israelites arrived, the Hebrew people arrived in Egypt in between the middle and new kingdoms of Egypt. Those Think back to our Egyptian history. Um, I love Egyptian stuff. And so they landed with Joseph at the time before the new kingdom. And they would have lived through the development of the new kingdom. And by new kingdom, I mean people like Amenhotep and Hatshepsut and Tutankhamen, those pharaohs that you know, where Egypt became very powerful and very wealthy, that's the period of time that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were growing in size and number and strength. It is very fine and good that we could draw a direct link between their strength as, in a sense, the servant class in Egypt and the capacity for the Egyptian economy to have grown so strong when it did. Archaeologists and anthropologists can track the new kingdom of Egypt as being a stunning consolidation of wealth and power, unlike really anything the world had seen up to that point. The Israelites are there while this consolidation and economic growth is happening. Then the new kingdom shifts, and we get a new dynasty in that new kingdom that starts with Ramses I, then his son Seti I, and then Seti's son Ramses II. The action of Exodus likely happens right around then with Ramses, Seti, and then Ramses II. It's very possible that Ramses I is the Pharaoh when Moses is born, and Ramses II is the Pharaoh when Moses comes back and then has the plagues and the Exodus. So that just kind of puts that... So we're talking about after, you know, King Tut and Queen Hatshepsut and those sorts of people when Egypt is at its wealthiest. Mm-mm-mm. All right. I'm... I, you know, I have to do a little bit of Egyptian nerd stuff. It's my favorite. We're going to jump in now to verse 8. Before we get to the shift in Exodus, any questions? Any questions? I knew you did. I saw your arm moving. Okay, I was waiting for you. When when Abraham left, did everybody go or were any people stayed? When Jacob and his family came over? So the question is... Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, when Jacob's whole family... So when Joseph invites his brothers and his father and that whole family to come to Egypt, did anyone stay? The historic answer is, we don't know. The way the story tells, the the way Exodus tells the story or Genesis to Exodus is that effectively all of the family came. It's very likely that farther branches of the Hebrew people stayed. Um, To think that every person who was Hebrew came to Egypt, that's so unlikely. Um, But I do think you're talking about Jacob had some money. Remember back at this time, especially in the the Middle East, he had to settle south of where the good land was. So if you think of Israel, I always say Israel is sort of like a lovely parfait. In the lower part of the parfait, it's desert, and it's really hard to grow anything. In the middle part of the parfait, you get some moisture, and it's good to grow things like olive trees, rosemary, things like that. If you ever go to the Garden of Gethsemane, outside of Jerusalem, it smells like rosemary. It's incredible. Then the northern part of Israel, in the top part of the parfait, where you get all the good whipped cream, that's where anything can grow. It's very fertile. It looks very much sort of like the southeast of the United States. It's got lots of grass and green things. When Abraham came all the way down into Canaan near Jerusalem, he would have settled outside of the growing area. And so he would have needed to tend animals. They would have really been shepherd people because they couldn't grow anything in the ground. So they effectively had to raise stuff that, needed to be, that didn't have to grow in the dirt. There's a connection to those people. So we know further on down that Moses, when he's cast out of Egypt, he links up with these same kinds of people. It is entirely likely that those shepherding people in effectively Sinai Peninsula, Southern Israel, would have been Hebrews that did not go to Egypt. It is not explicitly said in the story but it seems most likely that you had sort of the distant cousins that stayed and continued to shepherd, while Jacob and his household, which could have been hundreds of people. We think of households in our modern terms. That is not the case here. Jacob would have had these, you know, 12 sons, and each of them would have had wives and children. And then each of those little macro, micro households would have had servants. So you, there could have been 400 people that came with Jacob's household when they moved over to Egypt. So you're not talking about a small group. But is it the hundreds of thousands of people who will ultimately leave Israel? No. They would have left some distant relatives back in Israel. And they would have, in a sense developed along a different path. We see this happen after the exile. When the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and took the Israelite leadership, the Jewish leadership into exile, they didn't take every person. They don't have to feed all those people. They effectively decapitated the social order. So they took the priests and the teachers and the judges and the politicians, and you know, they took all of the kind of intellectual class, so to speak, and they left everybody else. Well, the everybody else kept living, right? They kept making stuff and growing stuff. They just didn't quite have the social order. They didn't have the arts or the politics or the law and that kind of stuff. When they come back out of the exile, they are so smart now, right? These Israelites who went to exile, they have figured things out, and they've got these laws, and they are super creative, and they know exactly what to do. Well, there are all these people left. Those people are still Jewish. They're just not that kind of Jewish. And we get to that conflict in Jesus' lifetime. Who are the Samaritans? Well, Samaritans are Jews who simply didn't become the kind of post-exile Jews that the others did when they came back. So the reason that you get this moment where, when we read the story of the Good Samaritan, which is arguably perhaps the best story that we have that Jesus tells, It's easy to say, why would that person have done this nice thing? Well, it's not a vacuum, they're not nice. They are coming out of this thread of Judaism where you say you take care of people. And so this Samaritan person stops and cares for this person in a very meaningful way, not because they're nice, but because they have this well-formed idea of being Jewish and generous and good to neighbors, even strangers. And the reason Jesus tells that story, it's not about a nice person. It's about a Samaritan. And the reason Jesus does that is he is poking these Jews in the eye, saying, you think you're so much better than these other people over here, but you're all loved. And in fact, you can hide behind your law and feel so vindicated that you're so much better. But in fact, look at these good Jews that walked right past the person who needed help, and the bad Jew, the Samaritan, is the one who helped. And so we see these branches happen all the time, and effectively what what will happen in the story of the Exodus is the Israelites that come out of Egypt will then merge with the Israelites, the Hebrews, who stayed. And they then will form a big nation that will become the Jewish people. Any other questions? All right, let's get into it. I have time? Yes. Verse 8. Let's do it. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pittim and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick. And in every kind of field labor, they were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. Okay, we'll stop there. And that's as far as we'll go today. If We look at verses 8 through 14. There's a big time jump. Verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We jumped like that 400 years we think. So, depends on where you look. There are different parts of the Bible that say different things. We've got some references, like if you look at Exodus chapter 12, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it says it was 430 years between the time of Joseph and the time of Moses. There are other references to 400 years. There are other references to four generations. And so, we know generations overlap, But it's very possible that the reference to four generations means like four 100 periods of time, you know, if a generation was about 100 because Joseph lived to be about 100. Nah, all I will say is, it was a long amount of time. The way that the story is told is actually important. So, in a couple years, and to say, Between Joseph and Moses, bad things happened. God was absent. No one was doing anything faithfully. And after 400 years, a baby was born. And that baby was threatened to be killed. And that baby was saved by people who knew he was special And he was raised outside of his home in order to become a person who delivered people who were oppressed and who were scared and saved them from the dangers of the world. Who'd that sound like? (laughs) Yep. The story we will read of Moses is carbon copied in the story that Luke and Matthew tell of Jesus down to the 400 years of silence. And so what we get in this moment here between Genesis and Exodus is going to become then the model of telling the story about Jesus, not simply because Jesus is the new Moses, but because Jesus is even better than Moses. That's the story that the Gospels tell. And if you don't know the story of Moses you can't understand the impact of the way that the story of Jesus was told. So we jump 400 years real fast, and now we see that there is a conflict that has been structured for us, right? And this is something that we all know very well. You can't solve a problem without a problem. And so the Egyptian pharaoh is looking out over the Israelites and saying there are too many of them, they are too strong, and if something bad were to happen... They could actually threaten our security. We, at least I, I am probably not alone in this room, immediately see Charlton Heston, right, and building bricks and, you know, Jews' whips, and you've got the stones on the things and the person, you know, who's greasing the wheels and all that stuff. So <clears throat> it's fine. I mean, I love the Ten Commandments and I grew up watching it every Easter. And I think that is okay. Um, it's, you know, it's early 20th century versions. It's, you know, lots of white people pretending to be Egyptian and um, Hebrew, but whatever. Um, it's fine for us to kind of hold that in our mind so that we can get an image of perhaps the kind of labor that was being done. <clears throat> Where de DeMille gets that idea is from this These few verses here, where effectively Pharaoh says, we've got to do something about these people. Put them into labor camps, give them hard labor, really crush them. And instead of crushing them, you see it as if they spread even faster. And so it's teeing up. We've got to have Egyptians as the bad people, right? We are setting up a good cop, bad cop moment, with the Ten Commandments, I mean, with the plagues, right? Where you've got, we have to somehow believe that the Egyptians are bad or else what happens to them with the plagues seems cruel. Now, I will argue as we go through the plagues, it's cruel anyway. But at least there is a nod in the story to making the Pharaoh, at least, or the Egyptian elite, to being sort of the evil members of this story. So that when they get hurt, we really don't sympathize. We continue to sympathize with the Israelites who have been oppressed and crushed and forced into labor. And when they get back at the Egyptians, we cheer. That's the point of setting up the Egyptians to be these mean people. Kimberly asked, like, to Egypt? Where'd they come when they came to Egypt, probably? Maybe. Okay. Yeah, so the question is, where did the Hebrew people come geographically? And in a sense, where Abraham landed is as best we know, um, and that would have been south of Jerusalem. Um, It would have likely been in that area that is arid and desert-like, um, where they would have had to raise all of the animals um, because they couldn't grow stuff. If you, if you, geographically, if Israel is here, tall and skinny, they would have crossed the Sinai Peninsula into Egypt. We know from Egyptian records that much of what was happening in the New Kingdom was happening south of where we think about Egypt today, in the area of like Luxor and Memphis and things like that, places like that. Cairo... Cairo figures into this, as does Alexandria, but the wealthier bits, and even today, with the exception of the pyramids, if you want to go see the real good Egyptian stuff, the buildings and the temples and all that stuff, you really have to go south, which is up the Nile, right, because the Nile runs south to north, up the Nile to Luxor, Memphis and places like that. So that's likely where they would have landed. Um, the whole building the pyramids bit is probably not the Israelites that would have happened earlier. Um, it would have been the temples and stuff that we, you can still go and see down in the Luxor region. And so that w- is really where we're talking about them coming out of. And we'll note when we get to the Red Sea crossing that geographically speaking, there are some ideas of how that might have happened Um, versus the, like, drama of the Ten Commandments um, that we all have in our head. Is that the only question so far? Yes. Great, thank you. Um, Let me see. Any questions so far about this before I sort of wrap it up today? Mm -mm -mm. What I will say sort of at the end here... When I talked about the historicity of this story, it's important for me to note, as good scholars, that the characters of Joseph and Moses, in addition the Israelites being in Egypt at all, is not recorded in any historic documents ever discovered to this day outside the Bible. That's a little weird. And so I acknowledge this as we go into it because it's important for us to be honest about the rootedness of these stories and how they figure into the religious faith life. We might look at Moses as, again, superhuman. When we go through this year, there will be moments where Moses does things that are stunning and really superhuman. We can ask the question, was he a, a single real person? Some scholars have postulated that he could effectively be a collection of multiple people that we just kind of created in the story of Moses, but I'm not, I don't think that really is true. Um, I do think there was a person named Moses, and I do think he did some amazing things. I think those things have gotten this big over time, but it doesn't make the impact he had in the formation of the Jewish people as a religious group any less important. But... We do have historic documentation outside of the Bible that someone like, say, Jesus existed. We do not have historic reference outside of the Bible for people like Joseph and Moses. We don't even have an Egyptian history that the Israelites or the Hebrews were even ever there. It is strange that a child raised in the court would not have been recorded Sort of like any monarchy anywhere, you record children and you record princes. And so if we have a story like we see in the movies, where Moses is raised up with maybe Ramses II, and like brothers, and then Moses is cast out and all that stuff, what happens in the movie is very important. Because Jul Brenner says, strike his name from all the stones. It's an interesting solution to this problem, because it seems as if Ramses, being jealous of Moses, removes him from the historic record. Hey, that's clever. I mean, I won't lie, that, sure, could that happen. happened? Sure. Um, but, meh, that seems a little bit far-fetched. I saw a hand. Okay, but once they started writing things down in Babylon, then is that historically correct? <laughs> Okay, so once they started writing things down in Babylon, is that historically correct? The time difference between the story of Moses and when the Israelites are in exile in Egypt, I mean, in Babylon, is effectively like between now and when Christopher Columbus sailed to America. I mean, it's a long time. And so if all we had was oral tradition about Columbus's journey, or you name anybody who, you know, because obviously, whatever, I won't get into that. So, if we now wrote the story of Columbus, you know, getting financed by Spain and all the other stuff, would that be history? If it's written hundreds of years after it actually happened? Maybe, but is there any way for us to know what, you know, no one was in the room when it happened, right? Sorry, I'll not quote Hamilton all, all year. Um, but in a sense, we don't know, because no one was there. And so when they write it down in the exile, they wrote down their story that they had been told. And as with any person telling any story, you have a goal in mind. This is when I teach anything about the Gospels. Why do we have four of them? I mean, in a sense, you could say, one's good enough, right? Except, no, one's not good enough. Because with the exception of Mark's speed, you know, Matthew, Luke, and John in particular tell very different stories of Jesus. But it's as if you and your family or your circle of friends, if someone were to write your story and you picked your child, your sibling, your parent, your best friend, and they all told your story, those are very different stories, Are any of those stories untrue? No. They're true because of the storyteller, not because of the subject. And so that's how I understand the way in which these books work together. The storytellers are telling a story that is true. They weren't there. They didn't see it. They only know what they've been told. And so I think that is a pretty low bar to then stamp it and say that is historically accurate. I don't think that's quite good enough. But I also think that's not the point. I believe they're true, and they help me in my own discipleship. So I don't care if they're historic. I just want you to know the difference between something being historic and something being true. That's my goal. Because we, in our world, Wrestle all the time with people who say that certain things are literal. Don't do that. Be more complex. Don't be someone who takes half a verse out of one book in this entire library and then says that's the absolute right thing to do all the time. Don't be like that. Because it's just lazy. Forget that it's inaccurate. It's, it's not good enough you know, this book, right, I mean, that's a big book. You can't take 3% of one page and summarize the whole thing. It's not, a, it's not good enough. And so part of us studying all of this is giving us the complexity to weigh these things with a nuance that 21st century does not want. We We're tired of nuance, and nuance does not get any clicks. Nuance does not get any views. Nuance does not get any sort of signage on the streets. And yet, I am very certain Jesus celebrates the nuance, right? Jesus constantly did things that sort of made no sense or seemed inconsistent because he simply said, you all love each other. And I've said it a hundred times. Jesus is so inconvenient because all he says is to love and we want to know how and who and when and how much and all the other stuff. Nope, that's not what he says. And so that is very, very inconvenient because as I've said many times, most people make it really hard to love them. And (laughs) that's okay. That's where we still have to try. and so I do think, you know, just to kind of wrap up today, our intro is done. So for those of you who, you know, suffered through the lecture on Western Civ, um, it's, we won't be doing all of that as much. Um, but what we are doing this year is we are looking to prove that this story is critical to our own journey as disciples of Jesus. And I think that we will see just how much Moses when connected to the rest of this Jewish history, informs who we are and who we want to be, who we were created to be in a very powerful way. And so I'm glad to be back with you all very much. I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.